page fright is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. These territories were stolen, and they are now the space where I inhabit and live. Um, but the guests you're hearing on this podcast often come from different territories across what is now known as Canada. I encourage our guests, and I encourage you as well listening at home, to take a moment to consider the territory you're on, its history, and how you might have come to belong here. French. I'm on Instagram at Andrew W. French, and this, of course, is a literary podcast. It's actually the only podcast in the world that I host. Um, I am very excited about today's episode, uh, and I'm, I'm going to tell you why. The reason I was so excited about today's episode is not just because the interview went well, which, you know, is always very nice, um, but because this book really impacted me. Um, and I know every month I do a little speech and I'm like, listen, this is why this book is the best book I've ever read. And for the most part, I mean it. Um, I mean, I, I'm bringing on books that are really blowing my mind and talking to their authors and it's it's been fantastic. But this book, guys, this book really blew my mind. I don't know what to tell you. It felt like this book was written for me. I know it wasn't. It was written for more people than just me. But when I sat down with Andrea Bennett, who's today's guest, book, which is called The Berry Takes the Shape of the Bloom. It's out now with Talon Books. Um, I was struck not just by the poetry itself, but the content and how much of it related to me. And I just had one of those experiences that I think a lot of us have had as as poetry readers and as readers in general, where you just see yourself in a book more than you expected to. And that's exactly what happened here. I don't, I don't feel like I articulated that particularly well to Andrea, but... Um, Their previous book, Like a Boy But Not a Boy, um, was also on this show a while ago, and it was very much like in the beginning stages of me kind of acknowledging um, my own thoughts about gender. If you've been listening to recent episodes, you'll know that I, eh, recently is maybe not the word, but somewhat recently um, came out as non-binary, and so I've been thinking a lot about gender in my writing and my life, and a lot of that started actually with reading Andrea's book, and so to have them back on the show... Um, really meant a lot to me. It, it really meant a lot to go through this book too, because, um, you know, Like a Boy But Not a Boy is a fantastic book. It's a book of essays, and um, I recommend you read it. A lot of people recommend you read it, actually. It's, it comes well recommended. But um, poetry is, is more my speed and more my language, and the amount that I related to Like a Boy But Not a Boy was significant for sure, and I didn't expect it to be surpassed until I read this book, and um, really just so much of the content hit me. So, look, I'm not going to ramble on too much about this, but I will say I think you're in for a treat if you pick up this book, um, if you share you know, the interests that I have, if you want to read about gender, if you want to read, um, there's some stuff in here about parenting we talk about, um, body image is a big part. Um, just some really creative writing, um, which of course is what we do as poets, but um, sincerely really enjoyed this book and I hope you'll check it out. Um, If you haven't listened to that previous episode with Andrea, I know it was a while ago, your thumb might be sore if you scroll all the way back, but I will tell you now 
who Andrea Bennett is. So, Andrea Bennett is a National Magazine award-winning writer and senior editor at The Tea, who lives in what is currently known as Powell River, B.C. Their previous book, Like a Boy But Not a Boy, Navigating Life, Mental Health, and Parenthood Outside the Gender Binary, came out with Arsenal Pulp Press. It was a CBC Books pick for the top Canadian nonfiction of the year. Their most recent book, and the subject of today's episode, is The Berry Takes the Shape of the Bloom, out now with Talon Books. Here I am chatting with Andrea Bennett. We are chatting this month with Andrea Bennett. Andrea, how's it going? It's going pretty good. It's going not too bad. I don't love January and I'm just coming off a stint of having like a three day long migraine. So I feel a little discombobulated, but you know, it's fine. (laughs) Surviving. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I'm glad you're off the migraine stint. Uh, I'm so excited to have you here and talk about your book today. For those listening, I will have mentioned it in the introduction, but the book is called The Berry Takes the Shape of the Bloom. It is out with Talon and uh, there's links and all that good stuff below the description of the episode, so you should check it out. But in case you aren't convinced already, uh, I'm going to ask Andrea to read us a poem to kick things off. I'll read you the um, titular poem. Cool. (laughs) Um, Before blueberries grow, they grow a bloom that looks like a proto-berry. The berry then takes the shape of the bloom that came before it. The berry displaces the bloom that came before it. When people say that mothers and daughters have complicated relationships, what they mean is that the daughter is the blueberry and the mother is the bloom who came before it. My mother bloomed and then I was a wave or a skateboard or a foraging deer. My mother bloomed and I did not displace her in the right way. Did I bury? You can say that what you want is to hold a space that isn't fixed. You can say that's what you want, but someone is always there to tell you that the bloom is what comes before the berry. Mm, Awesome. I am so excited to talk about this book that I hardly even know where to start. Um, There are so many themes that came up in here um, that really resonated with me that I'm so excited to explore. Um, I read this book probably... A month or two ago now, um, so it's taken a while from from reading to episode, but um, I was up in Penticton coaching a hockey tournament, and so uh, there were a couple lines about hockey in here, and I was very excited about that, and there were so many other things that struck me, um, so I'm super excited to talk about them. Um, my first question for you, this is one of the main themes, of course, in this book is gender, and I've, I've had you on this podcast to talk about gender before with another book that you (laughs) wrote um that was that was very fun um and so I am wondering that was a book of essays and this is obviously poetry so my question for you is what makes a good gender poem very difficult question and um how was writing poems about gender different from essays oh what makes a good gender poem I don't know that I can fully exactly answer that question except that um except that I love Allie Blythe's um um manifestations embodiments of of that form if we're going to call it a form unto itself um 
Oh no. It's sort of like the um the US Supreme Court definition of pornography. I don't know how to describe it, but I know how to say it is when I see it. Anyway, um <laughs> which brings me to the second answer or the second part of the answer to your question, which is um that this book, The Berry Takes the Shape of the Bloom, is in some ways like the sort of twin of like a boy but not a boy. Um it's obviously published a lot a few years later. Um, like a boy came out in 2020 and I guess we're in 2024 now. So three years. Um, but the draft of the manuscript was finished around the same time, actually. Um, and what went into the poetry book was everything I couldn't articulate in like sentence and essay form. Or things that, oftentimes things that I knew to be true and felt to be true, but that made sense in the shape of a, in their prose poems, but they're still poems that made sense in the shape of a poem, made like intuitive or emotional sense, but I needed them to exist in that space where the reader was going to make some of their own associative leaps and bring themselves into the poem and um you know put a little bit more mathematical effort into figuring out the equation than um than the essays which I took a more um it's still like pretty liter still pretty literary actually but more sort of straightforward approach in terms of like a b c here's what happened um right. here's how I thought through it that kind of situation so yeah in some ways what ended up in the poetry book was what was sort of like unutterable in standard prose. Um, yeah, I was I was going to ask too. So you called these prose poems, um, which fantastic. Um, I I read them not even realizing they were prose poems. Which to me, now that I'm looking through the book, I'm like, what? How did I not see that? Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the things I wanted to ask too is like. Uh, because I'm working on a manuscript where I, I've got some long poems in there. And I was wondering if this started out as individual poems or one long piece or how it kind of came to be. Yeah. Um, so I used to work as an editor at Talon Books and um, did some production. I kind of was a bit of a jack of all trades at Talon. And um, a fellow editor, Katrina Strang, she read the manuscript and really liked it and wanted to bring it on. And I thought that that was amazing because I love Katrina and, um, but also that I knew that I could make the case with my colleagues for certain choices in this book that are, um, a little non-standard. Um, and also, so I did the embroidery for the cover and kind of co-designed it, um, with, uh, Talon's designer, Les, who's great and who I worked closely with while I worked there. So I knew that I would get a hand in the cover if I presented them with a good design. Um, and that's generally not something that you do with a publisher. Like, hey, can you please let me <laughs> design it? Those are two separate processes and I generally keep them separate. But in this case, I had a bit of a vision that I wanted to see through. And it was the same for the shape of the manuscript. Um, I wanted to see, it felt right to, um, to see if I could 
pulled together a poetry book that didn't have a table of contents or any titles for the poems. Um, uh, not as an exercise, but just because that's the way that it felt right to me. Um, initially, I had them in a completely different order. So they were in a linear order, like time-wise, they were in a linear order. And um, they kind of followed this track of like childhood traumatic, finding myself um, through making lots of mistakes in adolescence and early adulthood. And then, oh, what's it like to be a trans person who's pregnant? What's it like to be a non-binary person who gives birth? What's it like to parent um, from that place of having experienced a bunch of trauma in childhood? Um, but then uh, this is why like, I'm so glad that the book didn't come out earlier. Um, the pandemic hit and things got recomplicated um, emotionally. Like, uh, I don't think that like life is not really linear and um, experiences aren't really linear. Like especially stuff that's traumatic tends to recur in the present mm. in a way that, um, you know, something can happen and it can remind you of, or you can just be back in that moment. Um, I think that the way that I experience life and time is very embodied. And so I can sometimes like literally feel like, I'm back in a moment from my past. Um, so so then I shuffled the manuscript up and reassembled it by vibe, I guess, in a way that I <laughs> hope that there would be certain arcs that would happen in the book and that um, it would exist loosely together almost in the way that I was experiencing those moments. Um, that it would have some like emotional and intuitive connections that would draw a reader through. And mm. then they could decide if it was a series of poems or, or single poems based on their reading experience. Yeah. If that, if that makes sense. No, totally. I, I'm always interested in this sort of thing. And, and the ordering of poems is so it can be unimportant to a collection, but I think really important to one like this, where, um, like you said, there are no titles. We're jumping page to page mm -hmm. on similar subjects often. Um, like these things are kind of like braided together um, in a really fascinating way. So it's cool to hear a little bit about how you ordered them and how that might have switched over the editing process, um, which is super cool. Um, I'm going to check our time and see where we're at. It might be time for our question. I think it is from my last episode's guest. So I'm really interested in this one. My last episode was with um, a friend of mine who just put their chapbook out. Their name is Kit Rothy. Fantastic chapbook. Um, and they are asking, Andrea, how do you separate the media you consume? So things like music and books and all that from your own writing. Oh, um, I don't think I, I don't think I do necessarily, mm. um, I guess I do. I don't, I don't, I guess I don't think about it exactly in that way. Um, and I work, so I work as an editor. So a lot of my job is like reading 
analytically all day from nine to five ish. Um, and sometimes writing as a part of my job. So often the media I'm consuming, um, and outside of that might just be, um, the a &E cold case podcast and like specifically the vintage ones that are narrated by, um, what's his knobs, uh, Bill Curtis. Anyway, like I, I don't, um, sometimes people will ask me like, oh, what, like, what are you, what are you listening to right now? Or what are you, and it's, it's not, it's, it's stuff that, um, that I, that hit me at a certain point in my childhood and <laughs> returned to over and over again, and not necessarily anything I would share. Um, yeah, I need to have a little bit more emotional. I need to have a little bit more space and like intellectual and emotional space to kind of stumble across like new stuff a lot of the time outside of work. I am reading it in within the bounds of work, but that feels a little bit different because I'm reading hmm. a lot of I'm reading arcs or yeah, advanced review copies with the idea of excerpting or um because we're gonna do like a roundup, um, which I guess is just, it's different than the way that one might read for leisure. Mm. So I keep them in separate boxes in my brain. Um, when I'm writing, I'll, re I'll read, I don't read very efficiently when I'm writing about something. So my next book is about food. It's about gardening, growing food, cooking food, eating food. And when I was reading books for that, I would just read things that were thematically relevant that I was interested in, but not in a sort of like, okay, I'm looking for this one particular quote most of the time because I want to let things kind of wash over me and then process slowly over time. Um, mm. That always has felt better for me. I've always loved the research process almost even more than writing. Um, writing is the thing that lets me like that offers me the opportunity to like waste or spend a bunch of time researching. <laughs> it also lets you ask, like I get to talk to people about stuff. Like I, I'll read something that I think is cool and I'll have questions and I want to, and then, so the act of getting to write about this thing or cite it means that it gives me the permission to reach out to the person who wrote that thing and be like, hello, would you like to talk to me about it? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that person will say yes. And so then I get to ask all of my nosy questions and have like a really interesting conversation with someone. That's a real joy. I like that part of it. And then the writing yeah. part is almost secondary oftentimes. Yeah. Hmm. Um, that that research part, the nosy questioning and reaching out to people is um, exactly what our listeners are hearing right now, because I'm super excited yeah. <laughs> to ask you questions about this book as I'm writing my own and uh, working on all sorts of stuff related to themes that are going on in this book. So I'm super excited. Um, but yeah, one of the things that I wanted to ask about in this book um, is body image, because this comes up throughout these poems, this poem, however you want to look at it. Um, and so... I really wanted to ask what is, I think, a kind of difficult question. Um, basically, how you think it is that we can write about body image and, and how we conceptualize it. Because the concept when we think about body image is 
in the case of the speaker of these poems, kind of a almost like a warped perception or a uh, specific perception anyway of your own body. So, and it's a really abstract feeling. So how do you capture that in a poem? That's basically what I'm asking because you do it so well in here. I have a follow-up question, which okay. is like, okay, uh, when you say, it's just a clarification. It's not like a, yeah. when you say warped perception, mm. um, I don't, you're probably right but um yeah like being embodied and having a sense of who I am is like mm -hmm. is one of the things that I like struggle with a lot actually so I'd be curious to know um yeah if you could specify like what what you're thinking of when you say like warped emit warped perception that'll help me answer your question yeah well I think it may be my own projection with that point. As soon as I said warped, I, I was like, I need to specify. No, no, yeah, I but... guess it's like, I, there's some gender stuff that comes up. There is mm -hmm. some, um, there's some stuff around disordered eating and like being a person and like a, like a plump or a larger body. Um, um, yeah, that stuff all does come up in the book for sure. Um, yeah. Oh, I, there's I think... also stuff around having like surgery and um, yeah, I'm finally going to get to have top surgery this year, for example. <laughs> so, so yeah, but, yeah, bodies are ever present in the book for sure. Um, yeah. And then there are also some ways in which um, I wrote about this, I think, more in like a boy, but not a boy. But um, the experience of being pregnant for me was not a dysmorphic experience because I was so curious about what it was going to be like um and just interested in in yeah growing a body and um um so that I think that that's different for every every trans person who carries who carries a baby like everyone or chooses not to because it would be too dysmorphic but what was weird was um, other people's perceptions of me or the ways in which we view pregnancy as such an essentially gendered thing, very gendered female. And so to experience pregnancy from outside that was to be constantly being reinscribed with these um, markers and identities and adjectives that were not comfortable for me and that didn't fit so that part was uncomfortable but the actual experience um I mean it's such a there's so many things in life that are so like normal in a way like by definition um a lot of human humans are born and humans die and yet our experiences of those things like there's such heightened experiences so um anyway I was curious about what it was gonna be like but yeah so I don't know if that comes up exactly in the berry the same way it came up in like a boy but that also is sort of pregnant the pregnancy is very present yeah and and not just pregnancy but like parenting in general is is yeah. definitely an important part of this book and um when I say that I think as a reader uh, if you are listening to this and you've read Andrea's book, that you might be thinking, like, I'm talking about their their role as a parent, and and I am to an extent, but also the way that parenting is modeled is examined in here really interestingly, and and that kind of 
comes up um talking about bodies too because there are lines like um mm. is it a is it a mother or grandmother i can't remember who buys something two sizes too small for a daughter they don't have something to that extent that that really stuck with me um and so parenting comes up throughout here in in really interesting ways and I think the way that it's modeled and then uh how that model is either adopted or shifted is super interesting too I guess can can you speak a bit to how parenting comes up in this book and and how you manage to weave that in yeah um the I think maybe I think it's possible my former book um uh Knoodler's like me my former poetry book my first poetry book (laughs) maybe had even more of that um I'm 39 now and I've been estranged from my mother since I was about 25 so 14 years I only saw I've only seen her once in that time and it was at my brother's wedding (laughs) um which I did the day of coordination for so it was very difficult to (laughs) but um but anyway um yeah it came up in a different way for me because I think I was processing certain things I needed to process before or as I was stepping into my role as a parent. Um, so yeah, a lot of things came back up for me um, that I needed to think about and work through. Um, someone asked me a question. I was at a at a festival this fall or past, last fall about like how to heal or what it means to be healed or something like that. And I think that it's an ongoing process and there's never any sort of like end to it and certain things will always come back up. So the way that I felt like I didn't fit as a child, um, um, like there were very specific, my mother had very specific ideas for who she wanted me to be or who she wanted her child to be like like just a there was sort of this child-shaped picture and it was a certain picture a different person emerged the picture didn't change and so I was made to feel like I didn't fit it and um the stuff about body size was very related to gender in a way like in certain ways like difficult for me to piece apart um and resolved also hand in hand so yeah she did that was my mom that bought that just yeah literally bought clothing or sizes too small for a daughter she didn't have and I guess like that was something I was processing it's interesting like something I was processing so that I didn't revisit any of that as I became a parent onto my Mm -hmm. own child but then, yeah, I guess just trying to understand how I felt about it so they didn't, like, inadvertently repeat anything related. It's it's mm-hmm. tricky. It is tricky. Um, uh, for me, I, like, I felt just being a person in the world and getting to choose who I got to have relationships with and how I got to have those relationships and, and what my life looked like um it took a while to 
to figure out how to have like a quote unquote healthy life. And I mean that like mentally um, and emotionally, um, but then parenting is so challenging. It's so challenging to have a kid in a way, like it, it's very triggering in a lot of different ways because they, kids like push your buttons in a way that um, is really wild. And, um, and it's really important as the adult in the situation to meet that in the appropriate way, to meet that as the adult in the situation and not as a like harmed child in that situation. So, um, so that's why I think in part, I was thinking about all that stuff, why it was recurring for me. Um, and I am not saying I am perfect in that respect. Um, to be clear but yeah <laughs> um yeah no i i think it that's one of the things that i found super interesting and and really like what was unique to me about this book is that you read so many poetry collections where um themes are consistent throughout you know they're running through like we would see a theme of like gender um coming up or a theme of like death or family or whatever um but it's often broken up into chunks poem by poem what is mm -hmm. just so cool to me about this book is that um you're almost encouraged to read it in one sitting because it's all interwoven throughout and I'm kind of I, I was just sort of propelled along um, with each page, which was really, really cool. Um, I, I really enjoyed the way that everything was intertwined. And so when you talk about these themes, you know, when I bring up um, the idea of body image, and then we end up, you know, talking about trauma or talking about um, how that is a gendered experience, as you know, most things are, um, it, it really reflects the book, I think, in the sense that everything in this book is very well connected. And one poem can be about so many things in here in a way that I hadn't seen not recently if ever and and I really enjoyed so that's my take um but that's so we cool. are yeah <laughs> um we're about halfway through so I'm wondering if I could get you to read one more for us sure um this will be one of the pregnancy poems cool each week the embryo I've been carrying is likened to food sesame seed chickpea kidney bean relatable like the cone there is no such thing as being a little bit pregnant. Only this is what it's felt like. Two pink lines with a promise that could fade, like wax crayon preventing dye on the shell of an Easter egg. I'm pregnant, I tell my practical friend. I'm pregnant, I tell my friend who will have two under two, but I might not stay that way. The place where I get my hair cut is chock-a-block with young trans parents. It's not time to worry yet about how I'll ask not to be called mom. First, Madame has appointments, ultrasounds, preventative health care for the at-risk postpartum period. No energy left over to say I'm not her. Uh, just to clarify, and I've been clarifying this in all my readings, I was pregnant in Montreal, which is why there's a bit of French in that poem. I'm not just being um, hoity-toity about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like it. That's that's very, very cool. Um yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit, Andrea, because this is a, a book that I feel would take, you correct me if I'm wrong, but a long time to write. Because, I mean, you were, as you mentioned, you were writing it kind of in tandem with like a boy, but not a boy. And um, so I imagine, you know, writing two books at once, even longer than just one. And um, 
when you are working on a project that that takes a long time, like a full length manuscript, even chapbooks, that sort of thing, that do take a while, um, what does your writing routine look like? Do you have a routine or are you just kind of whenever you get a second sitting down and scribbling something out? The latter. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the, yeah, I don't really have a writing routine. It's very, in the case of prose, um, it's very like to deadline. Those deadlines might be fake deadlines. Like if I have something work related, like um, I need to carve out, I need to figure out how to carve out the time of my work day to address it. And so maybe I'll give myself a fake deadline as sort of a motivator or for um, like an essay manuscript, the, the, um, the publisher has a deadline. And so I make many deadlines along the process. Um, but for poetry, like no one is banging your door down. <laughs> asking please please where's the poetry no one's doing that so um and it actually doesn't really work for me generally um it, I can't really choose to sit down and write poetry sometimes I can give myself a prompt um and there's at least there's a prompt poem in this book actually um let's see oh yeah okay so the um the poem that starts gone are the days of dawdling that line is from kayla zaga's um it's from a poem and kayla zaga's for your safety please hold on that started as a prompt poem so i was in a little group with like a few poet friends and we it went in google doc and we would give each other prompts and then write um but that's kind of just a way to get the process started or get your, getting get your brain like remembering that poetry exists is a thing that you can do. And so the way that I have always written probably like what I would consider my best poems are the ones that continue to exist and I submit them places or they show up in a manuscript. Usually it's just that I have given myself enough space in life that I'm like walking around or in the shower, or gardening, or doing something physical, and then something like alights on me somehow. Like I notice something in what I'm seeing, or uh, my brain finally finishes like processing something like five days later, eh, something like that. And then I get a line or a few lines and then, and then the poem starts to take shape. And in that case, like I'll write it down on a scrap of paper or um, the notes half of my phone. Yeah. Um, and that is my process. That's my process. And so <laughs> I might go through months like where I don't write a poem and then I'll write a bunch in one month. Um, if my life is busy and I'm exhausted or, or I just came off a spate of having my, I don't have any, there's no new poetry. There's no poetry happening. Like it's something that has to have, like, I think you have to have what I have to have leisure and downtime in order to do it. Hmm. Um, yeah. It's like some kind of Walden pond thing. It's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I've spoken to a lot of people on this show who, um, and it's always interesting to me because they've almost all, I'm going to go ahead and say just all of them have written more than I do. Um, but a lot of them have also gone through the period of no poetry or the period of no writing. And I remember recently I was talking to Chris Banks about his book and we talked about um, how it can be difficult to label yourself a poet or feel like 
a poet if you're not actually writing the poetry actively um but he and I were discussing and he made the point of you know that time off is part of the practice too um and that time away yeah and and it's interesting how you know you're right that nobody is banging on my door or your door or anybody's door asking for a poem necessarily um but if they were to do so I don't know that it would be anywhere near the quality that you know that that you want to put out yeah is that true? you know, I know. There, there's that oh what's the magazine that does the um is that the nick blatchford occasional verse um there are so poet i've i think about this in terms of like poet laureates and in terms of people who write like occasional poems um mm-hmm. like poets on an occasion and so they've got to be spitting stuff out right unless you cheat yeah. and you pull like pull scraps from your scrap bin and <laughs> like but I don't yeah anyway so it must be something that some folks like doing or that some folks can do better than others I am not one of those I'm not one of those people the idea of being a poet laureate fills me with a type of dread and nausea <laughs> difficult <laughs> to oh god yeah the other thing is yeah because for me, poetry also comes part from the part of my brain that does not have a filter. Like it has to come from mm. that, like sort of like pure id part of the brain. And so, um, anyway, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting too. Like, I I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's very true that when I'm writing poetry, not that I write much else, but when I do write the poems, it feels very like there isn't much between the brain and the page uh, in the sense that like you have a thought it it gets written down especially in a first draft that nobody's gonna see because you can always just delete it um yeah. yeah it's interesting that that a lot of that and I think the result of that writing is something more raw and more um maybe personal at times or intimate for sure um which is what makes a good poem in my opinion or it can anyway um so it's super interesting how that works um I know you've published books of poetry before as well so you mentioned canoodlers um how is this book different from from your past poetry collections um (laughs) oh that's a good question I don't know I guess I'm I think that it is older and more mature maybe and it also had the benefit of having more of a like gestational time um Mm. um so I got to revise it and edit it kind of like as an editor like I felt like I got to have some objectivity um when I returned to it um yeah I think that it's probably really normal but when I reread my earlier book I cringe really hard but I think that's okay I think that's okay um yeah I don't know I it's hard for me to it is hard for me to answer that question because and I don't know if this is every I think this is also a fairly common experience but correct me if I'm wrong when I look at my own work um what I see are the like flaws or the ways that I would do it differently or the ways that I feel it doesn't like the worst is the ways that I feel like it doesn't quite like, like shape up to what I had in my head as the vision. 
but I mm. don't know how to meet that gap. Like, like as a, like a creative person, that is the worst gap. That's the worst thing to not yeah. know how I would solve it. But, but, um, but yeah, yeah. Canoodlers would be like a totally different book if I wrote it now or it wouldn't exist or, you know, whatever, <laughs> but it is, it, it is what it is. I was pretty young. Well, no, I was in my twenties. I wrote that book as my MFA thesis. Um, it was so exciting to have, to have it come out with Nightwood. Um, um, like a lot of queer folks and maybe folks from who had difficult childhoods in some ways I grew up earlier like I became an adult earlier in certain ways like had to be more self-sufficient but in other ways I it took me a much longer time to feel like grounded and secure and like safe in a way hmm. like I was a real mess in my 20s so I, that book is just a real grab bag but it feels like when I reread it I just it's transported to that time of being so immature and making terrible life choices um yeah and I guess I can see some of the immaturity in the turns of phrase or like you know reaching for cleverness instead of whatever what do you yeah it's fine I don't know I think that we all want like a little piece of us dies inside when we read our old work and that's normal and fine 100 percent. yeah I I know uh I, I have another question that I'll get to in a sec but my grandma told me a long time ago because I I expressed this feeling to her that some of my early poems that I had written and sent to journals and software that didn't even get into journals and stuff that I found on my you know documents or whatever uh really bothered me she she told me that um you know, somebody might still resonate with those things or that there's still a value because they provide you personally as the writer, a snapshot of the person you were when you penned those things, which yeah. I think is a really good point. And from somebody, you know, who my grandma, who doesn't, she's not a writer, um, really stuck with me. Uh, I think about that a lot. I'm sure I've mentioned that actually multiple times on this show before, but I think about it every time somebody expresses this feeling of uh, like a lack of comfort with their their previous work or or you know, whatever, um, which does happen, you're right, quite often um, with yeah. people that I speak to on here. It's a common sentiment for sure. Um, I do wonder if it's something that fades a little bit, like with eight, like, I hope, I would, I hope that in five years, I could look back at like a, at, um, at the Berry Takes a Shape of a Bloom and feel differently about it, I guess. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like, I hope that I still am okay with it or that it, yeah, but I, I that would be cool. Um, I guess yeah. that would be something to strive for. <laughs> if that That's interesting. I mean, it's hard to predict, right? What you're going to think of something in a long, especially as we change as people. Um, yeah. And I, and I don't think either that disliking or uh, having critiques for your past work makes it any worse or you know what I mean like there's still obviously a lot of merit in that work so it's interesting to think about though because we do it seems especially even as readers we we tend to write off things that came out like four or five years ago I, I do anyway I'll admit to it when I'm looking for poetry I'm often looking for like okay what just came out um what can I read now and I've been doing some more I guess back reading because there's a part of me that's realized there's a whole chunk of Canadian poems and poems in general that I haven't read that are basically between like the 80s and now. <laughs> but actually, you know what, before I get to that, uh, we're about 
we're we're kind of slowly approaching the end of our of our interview, which is upsetting to me because I'm having fun. But I'm hoping I could get a question from you for my next guest. It's not writing related. I just want to know how you feel about swimming in the ocean. Tell me how you feel about swimming in the ocean. Oh, Andrea, this is so exciting. Um, okay, I'm actually stoked that you asked this question because I do follow you on Instagram and I do know that you're an ocean <laughs> swimmer, um, which which is fantastic. But I also wanted to tell you and ask you for, I don't know, comments, input, feedback. Um, the book that I'm working on right now that I'm writing, um, there's a section at the end. I've basically taken scraps from failed manuscripts that I like and tried to piece them together into something. And the last section is about queerness and being non-binary, which is new to me um, somewhat. I only came out like a year or two ago, um, but using the ocean and water as a metaphor to explore that, um, which I think a lot of people have done because there's the idea of like fluidity and all those things, but I'm so excited to talk about water with you. And so um, first, first thing I have to do because I do it every episode, even though I know the answer, Andrea, how do you feel about swimming in the ocean? I love swimming in the ocean. I love swimming in the ocean. I also find it ter. I do also find it terrifying. Um, it like activates a lot of different anxieties for me, um, like fear of the abyss, um, fear of just like touching different creatures. Um, mm. The ocean is ever changing, which is what I love about it, and also what makes it so hard. Um, because as a person, I don't know, with a lot of anxiety and like. Um, uh, a lot of like heightened sensory like sensitivities when I swim at the pool I get used to the pool like I get used to seeing like the floor of the pool and the ceiling of the pool and so um but the ocean being ever-changing there's no getting used to it in a way like even if I swim in the same spot it changes it's different every time I'm there which I think is cool and, but but it also is challenging and that's part of the, I like it when life is challenging um but yeah so I love swimming in the ocean I love how it's salty I love how it's I love how it's cold I love the process of refrigerating myself um <laughs> yeah I yeah it's really interesting um I guess in a controlled way like like it's I set it up so that when I come out I'm gonna be able to be warm and safe I guess and so mm. I really appreciate then the experience of like wildness that I get that is in this like semi-controlled environment I guess of like I'm going to the same beach generally um yeah and I like lake swimming too lake swimming is like is a little bit easier in a way than ocean swimming because okay. the um it, the lakes where I swim the freshwater lakes they're not changing as much there are no tides though right there aren't creatures moving through in the same way like there are fish but um yeah and I do love the creatures of the ocean I love the creatures in the ocean although I would not I, it boggles my mind that people specifically try to swim with seals and dolphins like like oh. I like to keep a respectful distance um they don't hear but like um I don't know vacation packages people will like swim yeah with dolphins N not that's not for I would not know but I love seeing them in the water, um, like oh, a ways away. Um, hmm. Anyway, people swim with orcas, actually, even off the coast of, oh, gosh. Um, 
really i can't remember what kind it like norway or something but um we do not allow that here like we have yeah. stricter standards around yeah. how close i think it's like 400 meters or something you're allowed to get your boat cannot get within that distance on purpose if the uh-huh. whale then swims up to you that's different um but yes snorkeling with an orca not not a canadian thing i it happens on no. the coast in norway though wild. Um, which is, I, I didn't know that absolutely wild to me i mean <laughs> orcas are dolphins but they're huge dolphins hmm. <laughs> anyway whatever sorry i can ramble about this absolutely forever so you let me know if you have any no that's that's so fascinating you know what as as i said i am working on a book with some of these things in mind and so it's cool to talk about and get ideas about the ocean but um the orca thing boggles me really it does um i can't imagine i'd be so scared I don't, <laughs> that's, that's part of the thing about the, like you mentioned anxieties when you're swimming in the ocean. I feel like that's all I would get if I was swimming in the ocean. I mean, other than cold, but I, I feel like there would be so much anxiety for me because of that unknown, like, and things are changing. It's already hard enough for me to swim for a long time in a pool. I don't know. I'd be scared. I'm honestly impressed. Whenever you post about it, I'm like, wow, that's, that's crazy <laughs> that you're out here doing that. And I'm just like taking a nap today and that's my day. <laughs> I love floating. I love swimming. Yeah, in a fundamental way, it's just like different than being in air, I guess, in a way that feels, I don't know, it's like a big, it's like a um, a big cold hug or something, I guess, also. And I've said a few times, like, I feel like I'm part harbor seal. And that's in part because I have a higher tolerance for cold water than a lot of people, like even people I swim with. Mm. Um and yeah okay I was raised to believe that like like um like I should always try to be thinner than I am like whatever my whatever my body looks like whatever the shape I should always just be striving to be like smaller thinner have less fat on my body and um and so personally it's helpful for me to see other creatures making their way through the world with totally different body shapes that are completely suited for what they're doing and so um yeah i love seeing the seals and the whales and the um other yeah other creatures and just feeling like a minute of kinship and just being like yeah okay that's you know that's fine like that's it's a great way for them to be and i can just accept myself for who i am and it does come with these benefits I can hang out in the water water that's cold for a long period of time. And I'm just float I'm floating away. I have to put very little effort in when I um when I tread water. <laughs> you know, I, I actually have a friend who is also non-binary and they mentioned to me that they really liked going to the pool, not just for working out, but because everybody's there, regardless of what you look like we're all just here to do the same thing, move through the water or chill in the water or whatever, no matter how you look or feel. And I've thought about that every time I've gone to the pool since, because I, I feel like that idea is very freeing. That that would be the, I suppose, artificial, not natural equivalent to what you're describing. Yeah. I, from the time I was like a young kid, like really appreciated getting to see a range of different body shapes and sizes at the pool I understand that people do have like gender and size related anxieties um, like that are that are related to swimming. Mm-hmm. And so I want to like, igno- I would like to acknowledge that 
while at the same time saying that um personally I do appreciate seeing like I think that everybody should get to feel welcome it should be the beach should be a place for everyone the pool should be a place for everyone and it's that variety that um I don't know it makes yeah it makes me appreciate I've never seen another person's body that I have not felt like oh that's cool like that's (laughs) it's the variety is the spice of life um yeah anyway um so that's how I feel about it I understand that other people have like different feelings about going to the pool and I will say too that like the pool that I go to in the small town that I live in it does have a universal change room oh but it's used as the family change room usually kind of and so oddly enough like I use that change room when I'm with my kid but I always am not 100% sure about entering that space as a solo trans person. So um, I'm at the pool three times a week. Like in some ways it's my safe space and yet there are still some, yeah, like like hangups or worries. Like there's been, it's just been so heightened. Um, the yeah. Like transphobia and particularly around like trans people around kids. And so, mm. Um, I don't feel 100% comfortable just being myself in that space or choosing the change room that would feel the most um, normal to me. Um, yeah. Because I don't, yeah, anyway. No, I, I totally, totally relate to that because I, the hockey rink I, I coach at and used to play at, I don't play anymore, but I, when I coach, there's a universal washroom as well. And I feel weird because it's literally the two doors for the men's and the women's are facing each other and then in the middle is the door for the universal and you enter this little hallway and it's like okay what are you gonna be what's going on and I feel so (laughs) pressure whenever and and I know that the universal like whenever I go in there super gender affirming super helpful to have and for a lot of people that's such an important space and, and it should be um but often I walk down that hallway and I'm just filled with more anxiety because I'm like, okay, what am I? What's going on? Um, and you remind it. So I totally get it. Um, even yeah. though, well, I was going to say, I was going to say the hockey rink is my safe space. Like the pool is for you, but I don't know that that's always true. That's another thing to unpack another time. But um, hockey yeah. <laughs> is such an interesting lead up. Oh my gosh. I'd love to talk to you about hockey sometime, but yeah, I feel you on that. Yeah. I feel you on that. Um I guess like these things that are charged in particular ways also offering us like affirming experiences like that that's just sort of the complicated nature of life um yeah Yeah. I feel you on that it's yeah yeah hockey is wild yeah okay that's another we don't have that much time but (laughs) one time we will talk about hockey because yeah there are some hockey references in this book too there's some some lines about (laughs) braiding like sea cuts and stuff so I'm gonna bring it all back to your book because we're kind of wrapping up here um so before we take off and we'll throw it back to be doing a little outro and everything wondering if I could get one final reading for you from the berry takes the shape of the bloom sure um this book also is a lot about food because it's something I've loved I'm just everything is always about food I remember um Rob Taylor asking me about that about canoodlers like why are so many of the metaphors food related and I was like wow it's top of mind and it continues (laughs) anyway so I'll read a food related poem um I forget what poetics are I forget the word for the study of knowledge 
I need a phrase for when the word is a thing unto itself, a special ornate thing in itself. I work in the kitchen where I make the food. I work with the words as if they are ripe tomatoes hot from a water bath, needing to be skinned. Tomato, 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 over and over, into the heat and with salt and a halved onion and butter. I am sorry that I can't retain the words I am supposed to know. I am too busy having personal news. I am a food mill and poetics is a tomato skin. Sometimes I just want to experience things as they are and be in my body instead of thinking about things and my body's relationship to them. Oof, that last that last little line there. Um, thank you so much for for coming and chatting to me today. We're over Zoom, which for me is I don't think I told you new. I was using a different website where I couldn't see people, so it's so nice to see the person I'm talking oh, to. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh, what a what a privilege. Um, but yeah, so thank you so much for doing this. I'm I'm so happy that I got a chance to talk about your book. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. I look forward yeah. to speaking in the future again about swimming about hockey, about anything, and about, I'd love, to, I'd love to read your manuscript when it's ready. It's exciting that you're working on it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, I'm going to throw it back to me doing a little outro, so we'll stop our recording here. Uh, but thanks again. So there we go. That was me chatting, of course, with Andrea Bennett. Um, such a thrill to sit down with them. I, I really enjoy talking to them. Uh, I've, <laughs> I've done it twice now on the show. And it's so nice to um, read a book like this. I, I won't go on and on about it because I did that during and at the start of the episode. But um, it just, it really made me want to write more. And um, that that's that's tough to do sometimes. So that meant a lot to me um, to, to have this chat. And I hope that it was entertaining for you as a listener too. Um, and that maybe you, you got something out of it. Maybe you'll try swimming in the ocean now or, um, not swimming in the ocean if you're me and are scared of the ocean. Um, regardless, <laughs> that was our episode. Uh, I have another one coming up in February. Of course, this one, no spoilers, but I will tell you it has more than one author. <sighs> crazy. I know. I know. I know. More than one. How am I going to do it? How am I going to edit multiple people into one interview? Who knows? But I'll figure it out, folks. Um, I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be a fun episode. I've done most of the work already. Um, so hopefully I can get it out pretty quick, but we'll see. Um, point being, in February, there's a great episode coming, hopefully just as good as this one. And I hope you enjoyed this one too. For now, my name is Andrew French. I'm on Instagram at Andrew W. French. And this, of course, this has been Page Fright. Mm -hmm.